So this church at Philippi, of course, the book of Philippians was written to a specific church, the church at Philippi. And of course, it was a church that was very dear to the Apostle Paul's heart. It was a church that really, in many respects, humanly speaking, owed its existence to the obedience of the Apostle Paul to the direction of the Holy Spirit. I often think about the founding of Cleveland Baptist Church, and Pastor Pete just mentioned Dr. Roy Thompson. And of course, it was his obedience to the Holy Spirit that is the reason that, humanly speaking, Cleveland Baptist Church exists. There were many people who really, really in many respects said, hey, don't go to Cleveland of all places. Don't go there to start a church. And yet he was obedient to the Holy Spirit. And as a result of that, here we are tonight, uh, some 60, almost 66 years later. And so we're grateful for that. So this church, this church at Philippi, owed its existence to the Apostle Paul's obedience to the Holy Spirit. We read about that. It's founding in Acts chapter 16. And of course, this was during Paul's second missionary journey. And he had retraced his steps to the first missionary journey, and he's going about, and as he gets to kind of the end of it, he's now seeking the Holy Spirit in, in Acts chapter 16. He says, Lord, where do you want us to go? And seemingly as he tried to go certain places, the Holy Spirit closed the door. And finally, in a night vision, as we read in Acts chapter 16, the Holy Spirit of God said to Paul, uh, he saw a man from Macedonia saying, come over and help us. In Acts 16, 9, we read this passage that, in, that, in, in verse number 10, the Bible says, and after he had seen the vision, is what the Bible says, after he'd seen the vision, immediately. There wasn't a hesitation. Let's, let's, uh, let's, uh, let's spend some more time thinking about it. No, immediately, the Bible says, we endeavored to go into Macedonia. Assuredly, in, uh, in, in surely gathering, the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. So here's Apostle Paul's team. Now, they had been in Asia and now the Lord has opened the door, so to speak, to the West. And they cross that geographical barrier and go into Europe, to, to Greece, to Macedonia. And when Paul lands there, he lands in this city called Philippi. It was the city, the chief city of the region. And Paul and his team there met a lady by the name of Lydia, who was a, a businesswoman, obviously a, a woman of some means, of some wealth. And the Bible states that God opened her heart, as Paul preached, and she and her household received the word of God. And then she opened her home to Paul and his team and uh, gave them a place to work from. Well, you know the story, if you read Acts chapter 16, that it wasn't long that Paul and Silas are there in the city doing this work, that they get arrested because they cast some demons out of a woman. And they land in the Philippian jail after being beaten and thrust and placed in the stocks. But that night, God used that, that if you would, that, that hardship to open the heart of the man who ran the jail, the Philippian jailer. And that night, he and his household received Jesus Christ. And that's really the beginning of this church at Philippi. Now, some time has passed since Paul left there and went to other places, and then he writes this book, this book of Philippians. And this church is still precious and dear to Paul. Would you look at chapter 1? Look, if you would, at verses 3 to 5. Notice what he says. He says, I thank God upon every remembrance of you. You know, you, you, don't, you, you have to understand the preciousness of a church to a, a man that God has allowed to, to, to start that church and to, to pastor for some time, and then he moves on. So here's Paul reflecting upon that founding and what God did through his life and ministry and the establishment of this church. And he says, I thank God upon every remembrance of you. Listen, in always in every prayer of mine uh, for you all making requests with joy. In other words, Paul said, I had great joy, man. When I, when I pray for you, there's just great joy there. In verse number five, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. 
So, so you get the idea, don't you, when you read this, this opening, that, that this church is a very special church to the Apostle Paul. This church is blessed, had blessed Paul. They, they'd send finances and material items to help Paul as he preached the gospel. If you're there, you're able maybe just to turn over a page, look at chapter 4, look at verses 15 to 18. Now, you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel... In other words, when I, when, when I left you, when I departed from, from Macedonia, no church communicated with me concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. The idea there that they had sent him offerings. Communicated means they sent him financial gifts. For even in Thessalonica, you sent once and again unto my necessity. Verse number 17, not because I desire a gift, but I desire that fruit may abound to your account. And he goes on in verse number 18, and now I, have, now I have all and abound. I am full and having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor, a sweet smell, a sacrifice, except a well-pleasing unto God. So you get the idea that this church is a, an unusual church, and, and it's very precious in the sight of the Apostle Paul. Now we can conclude from what Paul states this, that this was a good church. Now, now you understand, don't you, when I say this, there's no such thing as a perfect church. All churches have issues because all churches have people in them. And as, as people, we have our issues. But this is a good church. May, may I say it was, a, it was the kind of church that you and I, if we were living in that region, we'd say, hey, I want to be a member of the church at Philippi. It was that kind of church that you'd say, hey, this is a good place to be a part of. Yet in this good church, a problem had arisen and needed to be addressed. I think, as I read this epistle, I pick up on the fact that there's something going on. It's not necessarily a, an, a, an overt problem. You know, the Corinth had a, all kinds of overt problems. The entire first epistle of, of 1 Corinthians, Paul did nothing but address a problem after problem after problem in that church. This church was more of a subtle problem, a kind of the under-the-surface type of issue that was going on. And, and you get the idea that there was some, can I say this, that there was some fussing going on? You know, we don't know anything about fussing, do we? There was some fussing going on. I, I, could I say maybe there was a little bit of contention going on. It was present. And as a result of that, it was kind of disrupting, so to speak, the unity. Th this contention hindered this church's ability to impact the world for Christ as they should. So let's ask this question. What causes contention? In other words, if people start fussing, if people start having a little bit of problems with one another, if there's contention among us, what causes that? Well, I got to tell you, you don't have to look very far into the Bible till you read about what causes contention. The book of Proverbs, chapter 13, and verse number 10, makes this statement. It says, only by pride cometh contention. So when my, my wife and I fuss, which is a very rare thing, it's because of my pride. It's not her pride, it's my pride. No, no, I'm telling you that when, we, when there's fussing, somebody has an issue of pride. Somebody is not willing to, to take the responsibility say, you know, I'm, I'm just wrong here. So, so here was a, there, there was pride, some pride, obviously here in this church. And, and so we get full of self, we desire to promote ourselves. It's part of the sinful human condition to be contentious when we get in the flesh. We see a picture of that among the disciples, don't we, the night that Jesus was arrested before he was crucified. On the way, on the way to the upper room. Now, I've often thought about this. Here's Jesus. He knows where, what's going on. 
It's not like he's going to be blindsided by his arrest. It's not like he's going to be blindsided about the cross. So he's got that burden on him. And on his way to the upper room, these disciples that he spent three and a half years mentoring and training, and these are the guys who are going to carry on the work of the ministry after his departure. On the way to the upper room, they're fighting. They're contentious. They're arguing about who's the most important. Who's got the higher position, so to speak? And isn't it amazing that in that upper room, Jesus, dealing with that, didn't scold them. He didn't get up and rebuke them. You know what he did? Took off his coat. Robed himself with a towel and got a basin of water. You see, it was, it was just kind of the custom, so to speak, that when you walked into a home, uh, you know, because of the, the nature of the roads and the nature of condition and wearing open-toed uh, shoes and sandals, you would pick up the dirt. And, and so when you walked into a home, you didn't wear your shoes in the home or your sandals in the home, you took them off. And normally you were met by a servant or, or, or the host. They would meet you with a basin of water. They remove your shoes and they begin to wash them. But nobody was willing to do that because they all thought they were so important. You're the son of God. The one going to the cross. Bearing our sins. Said, guys, let me show you something. And he bore that, that servant mentality. The one who deserved to be waited upon. Waited upon others. And so we, we get this idea that this is just something that sometimes is just human nature with us. Through most of this book, Paul deals with maintaining a right spirit and a right attitude at the church at Philippi. I don't know that this is necessarily gospel truth to say that it was just specific, specifically dealt with just two ladies, but they are mentioned. Chapter 4 and verse number 2, Paul mentions two women here. He said, I beseech Eudeus and I beseech Senchi that they be of the same mind in the Lord. These were two women. These are two females in this church. And you get the idea that Paul just kind of, just trying to help maybe quell the spirit, maybe try to bring a little peace. Says, hey, hey, there are two ladies here that I just want to encourage just to be of the same mind in the Lord. You know, we don't often stop to think about this, but sometimes when I've got a problem with someone else in the church, that problem doesn't just affect me and that person, it affects other people in the church. And I get this idea that it's kind of filtered over, if you would, to some of the other people in the church. And so Paul is saying, okay, uh, this is a good church, but here's, here's an issue that needs to be addressed. So this problem must have filtered to others, so the contention robbed them of peace and and that's why Paul makes joy, so to speak, the central theme of this epistle. You read the book of Philippians, you'll find that he talks a lot about joy. It's hard to have joy when there's contention. So he says, here's what we need to do. Here's the mindset that we need to have. So with that thought in mind, I want us to go to our text. And here's, here's the tonight's message. Here, here's the, here, here's the, really the title that I've just given this, an admonition to a good church. Paul is admonishing a good church, saying, hey, okay, you're a good church, but... Let's, let's just deal with something. And may I just simply say, as we read this text tonight, I, I think, can I, can I just simply say that Cleveland Baptist Church, in my mind, isn't just a good church. This is a great church. Amen. It really is. It's a, it's a wonderful church. And, a, and it's wonderful to see what God continues to do here through the years. But that doesn't mean that we don't every once in a while need to step back and just maybe let's just say what, whatever Paul has to say here could, could apply to us. 
So, so let's read the text here. Look at you what at verse number 27 of chapter 1. Here's what he says to this church. Only let your conversation be as becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. That in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which to them is an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given on behalf of Christ that not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which he saw in me and now here to be in me. So here's our text, verse, really verse number 27. So Paul's direction to the church at Philippi is something I think we can take to heart and be a better church, think about this as we launch into 2024. So let me give you three truths very quickly, and they're all found here in verse number 27, that I think if we can just apply them to our lives, this year we can be a better people. We can, because individually, what I am individually affects this church collectively. And what you are individually affects this church collectively. So in other words, I need to apply this truth to my life so I can impact our church in a better way. And so do you. So what, what, is the, what is the admonition? Well, first of all, he gives us in verse number 27 that we are to live worthy. We're to live worthy. Would you notice how he starts verse number 27? Notice the word only. It's an interesting word because it speaks of, if you would, of priority or of focus. So, so it, Paul is saying, here's my admonition. Here's it, what it is only. So the word only here is an adverb and it refers to one thing or to this and no more. In other words, this is the thing that I'm supposed to be working on, this one thing. We, we talk about Jesus being the only begotten Son of God. He is the only one. There is no other only begotten Son of God. So this one thing is what he's saying, this only. So the singular priority as believers and the church members is to allow our conversation to become the gospel. So the word conversation here is a word that we must understand because, again, it's an old English term that refers to more than just a speaking. We, we talk about saying, we're going to sit down, we're just going to have a conversation. I, I do a, a podcast, drop it once a month, and I call it a conversation between those who are laboring in the ministry. So we, we talk about conversation. We have dialogue back and forth. But this word here means more than just a conversation. The idea here means, it, it, it's a Greek word that means to, have, to, be, to behave as a good citizen. That's the idea here. So only let your conversation become the gospel. It means to be a good citizen of the community to which one belongs. So, so here's what I, I think Paul helped them to understand by using this term. Now, now, we wouldn't know this unless you really dug into it, so that's why I'm going to just spend a little bit of time here. This church at Philippi, or this area of Philippi, was well aware of the thought that they were citizens of Philippi. You say, well, why is that important? Well, because Philippi was more than just a city, it was known as a colony of Rome, of the Roman Empire. Now you say, well, what does that mean? Well, Rome gave Philippi the distinction of being a colony. And what that meant was that Philippi was looked upon as being, quote, a little Rome. In other words, the people of Philippi so desired to be a part of the Rome of Rome as if, if they could, they would lift themselves up and move there. But because they couldn't lift themselves and move there, they stayed there and said, you know what, we're going we're gonna to make this city like Rome is. 
So all of our conversation, all of our behavior, everything that we do is going to be like Rome. And so every decision, every choice they made as a community was based on that desire. So being a colony, they were considered residents and citizens of Rome. So that distinction of being a colony says, okay, you don't live in Rome. Uh, You're not necessarily a citizen of Rome, but we're going to look at you as a citizen. Rome gave them the distinction because of their desire to live that way. So they lived like Romans. They spoke the language of Rome. They behaved in ways like the Romans. In every area of life, they focused on maintaining that privilege of being a Roman. And with that privilege came responsibilities. So here Paul says, reminds this church, okay, while Philippi is a distinguished as a colony of Rome, even more important than that, as citizens of something greater than Rome, you are a citizen of heaven. We are citizens, we are sons of God, and we are children of God. Therefore, only let your conversation, all of your life, your behavior, everything you think about, ought to become such as becomes the gospel of Jesus Christ. You might recall in Acts chapter 11 that the church, something was going on in a place called Antioch. Now, now, in your mind, I want you to think about the church in its beginning, starting with Jesus Christ and training some disciples in a church that's planted in Jerusalem. That became the church. And out of the church, the singular church, came churches as the disciples spread across the Roman Empire preaching the gospel. And, and as they did, people were baptized and these, these communities were formed called churches. And something happened, of course, in Jerusalem, because of their clinging, so to speak, to some of the old ways and the traditions, it seems like as God was moving the gospel along, something was happening in a place called, I'm sorry, in in Antioch. And so the church at Jerusalem sent Barnabas there to check it out. Say, you've got to go see what's going on there because we hear some good things. And so he goes there, and as he lands there, he sees God's doing something special. He reaches out to Saul, who had recently been saved in Acts chapter 9, brought him there, and they labored there. And you may remember, the Bible says in Acts eleven twenty six that the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Amen. Now, why were they called Christians? It wasn't a, a moniker, so to speak, that they took upon themselves. No, no, it was, a, it was a term, so to speak, that was given towards them because all they talked about was Christ. In other words, their thinking was, hey, Jesus is so important. He so changed our lives that we're so enamored with that that the world looked at them and said, hey, you're just trying to be like Jesus. Man, what, what, a, what, a, great, what a great thing to strive for. So Paul's saying to this church, hey, look, like Antioch, well, let's, let's just work this year of, of only putting our focus on uh, so that it becomes the gospel of Jesus Christ. So uh, their conversation was to become that gospel. As stated, we are by nature naturally born with pride. We struggle with human sinfulness, which doesn't become the gospel. You know, when I say that word become the gospel, it means to enhance it, to, to, so to speak, to make it attractive. You, you know, as well as I do, there are things that we do sometimes as human beings that really isn't all that attractive to the gospel. We get behind the wheel of an automobile sometimes. We're in a hurry to go someplace. And we got that Cleveland Baptist sticker on the back of our car. And we cut people off. 
Or we get mad because somebody cuts us off. And, and, and so, I mean, we, there's just things that we do. We, we say things sometimes. We do things sometimes that aren't becoming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our pride, our, our so to speak, our, our fullness of self. Because of our carnality, it isn't easy sometimes. Think about it. It isn't easy for us sometimes because we are carnal at points. It's not easy for us when others are spoken of affectionately or promoted or given a task that we want. The problem is sin. The problem is that we haven't died to ourselves. We haven't died to our own nature. So as a Christian, as a, as a believer, there's something that I need to constantly be working on in this life. And the, as the Apostle Paul said, hey, look, I die daily. When you got up this morning, you think, you know, hey, the old nature is dead. I'm going to live strictly for the things of Christ. So easy sometimes for that old nature just to really live in us for in, in prolonged periods of time. That, that's why church is important. That's why you can't, as pastor said this morning, that's why you need to be here. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday, because I'm going to tell you, you walk outside the doors of this church and you're not going to get much help. You, you won't be helped by, by the, the billboards going home tonight. You're not going to be helped by, by, by turning on your television tonight. You're, you're not going to be helped when you work, walk in the workplace this week. I'm just simply saying, it doesn't pull the best out of us. But we come to a place like this, where the old nature is chopped at and, and worked on, and the Holy Spirit works on us and says, hey, you need to die to some things, Kevin. Get beyond yourself. Only let your conversation, make it a focus. We're supposed to work on that. A good part of this book deals with having a right heart and a right spirit. Jump over, if you would, to chapter 2 for just a moment. Look, if you would, to what Paul says to him there as he's dealing with this thought of only and our spirit and our attitude being right. If there, therefore, be any consolation in Christ, if there any comfort of love, any fellowship in the spirit... Any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. See, he's dealing with this idea of, hey, die to yourself. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem the other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Here it is, verse number five. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of his servant and was made in the likeness, made in the likeness of men. Man, only, only this year, only let your conversation become the gospel of Christ. Can we admit tonight that we need to focus on this calling? Living in such a way, this new year to become the gospel of Christ? It needs to be our priorities we launch off in 2024. So let me ask you tonight, is sin and sin, uh, sinfulness stuck, some pride or sinfulness stuck, some area of our life that keeps us from living in a way that becomes the gospel? Husband, can I say, is there a bitterness in your heart towards your wife tonight? Wife, do you have some bitterness in your heart towards your husband? Kids, are you hanging on to some, some animosity towards your parents? Or are, are you living in such a way that, that you could say, man, as God looks at me, and I know he has to be pleased because I'm striving in every fiber of my life to be like Jesus. I wish I could tell you, every day of my life, I get up and I just want to live like Jesus wants me to live. 
I still have that old flesh that rears itself up in my life just like you do every day. I'm just simply saying, it needs to be a focus in my life. And so Paul admonishes this church to live worthy. But you notice the second thing he admonished him said, don't only live worthy, but he says, stand unified. Stand united, verse number 27. Again, only let your conversation be as becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I become and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs. Here it is that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind. So they're to stand united. Notice in one spirit. No, no doubt, I think when he's talking about this spirit, he's talking about the spirit of, of God, the Holy Spirit. As Paul wrote to the church, we know that the Holy Spirit seals and, and indwells every believer. Aren't you glad for that? So glad that I can't lose what God has given to me. Philippians, or Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 4, the Holy Spirit of God, is the, the Bible says, is the earnest of our inheritance. Uh, that word earnest is an old English term, again, that talks about being a down payment. When you buy something, when you purchase something of substance, they, they say, well, show how serious you are. Put this down payment on until you do the necessary things to finish the transaction. So the Holy Spirit of God is God's statement to us. Say, I've sealed you until I've finished this work. And by the way, salvation isn't the finished transaction until we're completely changed. So I may die in my faith, but it's not until Jesus comes and resurrects his body that it's complete. But the Holy Spirit of God sealing me until that day of redemption means that he's going to finish the transaction. So as we think about that, we understand that we're sealed. So the Holy Spirit is the earnest. It means that he's the down payment. But, but do you know that as a body, as a church, the Holy Spirit of God, we are his temple. First Corinthians chapter six. And I, you can turn there if you want to. But we often talk about this in the singular form. In other words, hey, in my body lives the Holy Spirit. I know that that's true. But I think if you read the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you're talking, Paul is talking not just to the individual, he's talking collectively to the church. Here's what he says, what? He's talking to the church, what? Because of their problems. Do you not know, church, do you not know that your body, that your collective body is the temple of the Holy, Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, which is not your own. For you are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body, and in your spirit, which are God's. Now you say, well, how do you know he's not talking to the individual? Well, he's talking collectively to the church. The, the pronouns there, your and ye, are plural pronouns. They talk to, more, to the group. So what he's saying to this church, and, and every church needs to understand, one of the reasons why when we come together and the membership comes together, there's something special the Holy Spirit of God does because he, this is his temple. This is where he dwells. God works in his temple. God's working here. So the spirit-filled life comes, becomes the gospel. A spirit-filled Christian is not seeking their glory, but has an attitude and a spirit of humility. When we stand fast, we're firm in the Holy Spirit. The, the world is not our friend. And I want you to look at the wording of verse 28, because I think it plays into what Paul is saying here. He says, and in nothing terrified by your adversary. As I did a little research on that idea of being terrified, it carries the idea of, a, of a, a multitude rushing towards you. You know, don't you, tonight, that as you and I are believers and we hold on to this book, that the world and culture in which we're living today is so changed, they're not looking upon us favorably today. I don't know about you, but I've been so disappointed here recently in our state. We had two opportunities last year to make a difference in two issues, and both of them failed. 
And then, just recently, our wonderful governor vetoes a bill that would be so helpful. Now, I'm, I'm disappointed, but I, I'm just, I need to understand that that's our culture. But listen, I'm not terrified tonight. And you don't have to be terrified either. You say, well, what's going to happen? Don't worry about it. Don't be terrified by your adversaries. Why? Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. If we stand fast, we don't have to back up. Just hold your ground. Just stand firm. It's not time to change, folks. It's time to stand firm. And the Apostle Paul was saying to this church, hey, don't worry about it. You think it's bad now? Lived in the Roman culture. We, we sometimes have this say, well, it's so bad. I'm not saying it's good. I'm just simply saying it's always been bad. There have been times that have been better, but it's always, it's always been a bad world. And so we need to understand that. And so here we're to stand fast to be firm in the spirit. The word, the world is not our friend. And so we, we understand that. So, so he's saying we're not to be terrified because we're standing fast in one spirit. Look, we, 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 we understand that the world is changing. The old preacher used to say it this way. He used to say, hey, look, don't worry about it. I read the back of the book and we've won. So just hold on. It's not finished yet. Stand fast. Then he says with one mind. So he's going back to this idea of, of putting yourself aside and, and being unified. A singleness of mind spoken of here. In the, it was also spoken in the book of Acts. And we see a picture of what that looks like in a church. The, that church of Jerusalem as, it, as its launch is a church of one accord. One, all things are common. There are one heart, one soul. The result, of course, of a common heart and soul is spoken of in Acts 4.33. And with great power, the Bible says, gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great graces upon them all. So this oneness resulted in a multitude being saved and baptized and then discipled. Would you notice the final thing that he admonishes this church in? He said, we're strive together. With this church, when a church is focused in the spirit, with a mind on ensuring the gospel is enhanced by its behavior, listen, it will make a difference as we interact one with another as Paul points out at the end of verse 27, look at that idea, striving together for the faith of the gospel. The idea of striving together is more than just a statement. Those two words, striving together, are really just one word in the original language. And it's the word we get our word athletics from. So as you think about that, you know, you think about a team effort to, to, to accomplish a goal. How about you, but I've been a, living in Cleveland all of my life. And the last time the Cleveland Browns won anything of substance was in 1964. I was a little boy, seven years old. They won a World Conference Championship. And I've watched as this, church, this team has just been decimated time and time again. And finally this year, we have a little something to cheer about. Because I feel like that team is working together as a unit. That's what he's saying here. This, this as a church, as a, as a body of believers, we're to strive together. Not strive against each other, but to strive together. Each play, team, player on the team knows what it is to win, and they must do their part. If they're going to win, the team must understand their opposition. Each member must know their role and work in their, with others to accomplish their common purpose. A team or a group united by a purpose will work to accomplish their unified goal. However, if they become divided or allow petty issues to distract them, they'll fail in that common purpose. So God reminds us, the Apostle Paul, that we sometimes forget who our enemy is. So he says we're not to strive against each other, but we're to strive together for the purpose of the faith of the gospel. The idea for the church is that we don't spend our energy and 
again, fussing and fighting with each other, but we're to, we're to strive with each other for the faith of the gospel. I read this illustration the other day, and my wife and I had, as we do our travel sometimes, you know, if we have a day or two in between meetings when we're still on the road, we may find something to do. And my wife is a great historical person. She, she loves history. Me, not so much. I'm just ADHD, and I'm just my short... Uh, I, can, I can go into a museum and see it all in about 10 minutes, you know. So sometimes when we're on the road, she'll say, hey, hey, I found this place. Let's go see it. So we were in the Nashville area not long ago, and we went to Hermitage, where uh, Andrew Jackson's home was there. And, uh, of course, uh, one of our presidents, he was our seventh country, seventh president. Before he was the president, uh, he was uh, the major general of the Tennessee militia. During World, uh, the War of 1812, uh, his troops had become uh, to a point where they were really at an all-time low in, in their morale. And as a result, they began arguing and bickering and fighting among themselves. It's said that his reported General Jackson called his troops together one day with one on the occasion of the tensions. In other words, things were so bad uh, that he just felt like, I need to do something. So he called them together. And here's what he said. He said, quote, gentlemen, let's remember, the enemy is over there, end quote. You know, sometimes we have to just remember that, don't we? You're not my enemy. I'm not your enemy. The enemy's over there. And we need to be collectively fighting together, laboring together to defeat that enemy. So let me just simply say this. The New Year's just around the corner. It's a couple of hours away. Less than six. Well, it's a little over six now. So let's make it a banner year for our church. Well, how do we do that? Well, we do it by doing what Paul says. Let's live worthy. Let's stand united. Let's strive together for the faith of the gospel. Remember, Jesus is coming.